Right, this is the first Sunday in December, obviously, and the Christmas season is in full swing. Over our last uh, 37 years here in Hart Butte, I've spent most of the Sundays in December preaching on Christmas-related themes, so I have a file full of Christmas messages. Close to 150 of them I've preached here in the last, uh, over the last 37 years, and that, that always presents an interesting challenge for me. Uh, there are, of course... Uh, uh, many perspectives biblically that are provided for us in the Word of God, and the Christmas story is well known to those who have known the Lord for many years. Uh, so uh, although it is a familiar story, we'll never completely exhaust all that we can learn and profit from as we meditate on the coming of the Lord Jesus and our uh, coming of our Savior to this earth to die for our sin. But the challenge for me as your pastor teacher, as Ephesians calls me, is what will I preach about this year during the Christmas season? And I, I regularly resist the temptation to pull an oldie out of the file and re-preach it, although there's nothing inherently wrong with that. Uh, I do think about that from time to time. I kind of was teasing my wife yesterday about uh, if, if, if I'm starting to be tempted to pull something out of the file, She'll tell me, you know, I think, Larry, you should preach something new. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and, that's, and that's good. And, and you know, that, that's absolutely great and wonderful. And although I tease her about that, that's, uh, that's, that's, a great, that's a great track to take for this reason. I want my understanding of the coming of Christ to deepen. And I want my appreciation and wonder at the grace of God to always be growing. And I don't want to turn into an old preacher who's living out of his sermon files. And so, and so I, want, I want familiar truths to be fresh to you and refreshing to you. So in order for that to happen, they need to be fresh and refreshing to me. So my file of Christmas sermons is still in the file cabinet. And, and we are going to look today at a story that we have mentioned in past Christmas seasons, but we have not really explored it. And we're going to explore it today. But just a couple of things uh, I want to mention by way of introduction so that we can know some of our theological Christmas words. Uh, when people talk about the, the incarnation of Christ, what they mean is that God the Son took on a human body. It's an old Latin word, incarnatus, and it means to make into flesh. So the New Testament, of course, teaches that Jesus Christ was God, very clearly, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And later on in that chapter, verse 14 of John 1, John says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. So we see the glory of the Almighty God in the human person of Jesus because He was God and man. So the, the incarnation is God the Son, who is spirit. Remember, Jesus himself said in John 4, talking to the Samaritan woman, God is spirit. So God the Son, who is spirit, confined himself to a human body to live life on this earth so he could purchase our salvation. That's what we mean when we talk about the incarnation of Christ. God became flesh. Only God can forgive sin. 
And, and our sin is a mark of our rebellion against our Creator. We have sinned against the One who created us, so He is the only One then who can forgive us. He created us. He made the rules. As our Creator, He has the right to make the rules. We have broken His commands, so only He can forgive us and restore us. So the Savior had to be God. But in order to purchase forgiveness for humans, the Savior had to be a human. He had to be one of us in order to pay for our sin. There's, there's nothing that we can do, nothing that we can offer, nothing that we can achieve that would be a sufficient price to pay for our sin. God's standard is perfection, and we can't possibly be perfect. But Jesus was, so He can be the perfect sacrifice for sin, because He was the God-man, the 100% God and 100% man, perfect and holy and righteous. So the incarnation is God taking on a human body, so He could be God and man, and He could be our Savior. There are many church traditions, particularly those that tend to be more formal and ceremonial, or sometimes they use the word liturgical, uh, more, more liturgy, more, more formalities, more, more ceremonies. Many of those church traditions often use the term Advent. Uh, it's actually become a more popular term in the last ten years or so. Uh, it also comes from an old Latin word, Adventus, which simply means arrival or approaching. And that word is applied to the month of December, particularly the Sundays in December that come before Christmas. The day that we celebrate Jesus is approaching or is arriving, and so this is the Advent season, many will say, and many churches have all sorts of ceremonial things that they do during this season of the year. So when you hear those words, incarnation and advent, that's, that's what folks are referring to. And as we think about the, the birth of Christ and we think about the plan of God for our redemption, our salvation, there's another word that I want us to meditate on, and that's the word grace. God is a gracious God. In a thousand ways, our God is a God of grace. We even see grace in the genealogy of Christ. And we want to zero in on a particular event in the book of Genesis that reveals the grace of God. And this event is mentioned in kind of a, a matter-of-fact sort of way in Matthew 1. So if you will take a look at Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to look at one little piece of the genealogy that Matthew wrote of the Lord Jesus Christ. Gospel of Matthew and chapter 1. Some of you will remember that the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, had had as its target audience the, the Jewish people. Of course, the Scripture is for all of us, but the Gospel of Matthew what was targeted originally at the Jewish people. So it is filled with Old Testament references and Old Testament quotations and Old Testament allusions. And, uh, and so, uh, so that's, this, is, this is why the Gospel of Matthew starts this way. Any Jewish person, when they pick this up and they look at verse 1 and they see the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, every Jewish person would automatically know exactly what was going on. So we're just going to read just the first few verses. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon. Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David the king. And David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Now, many of you well-read Bible students, first of all, you might take a deep breath and say, hooray, we've finished the begots for a moment. But many of you well-read Bible students immediately recognize the King David Bathsheba reference there in verse 6. You know, you, you remember that Solomon's mother was Bathsheba, so as David begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Uh, you know, five, a thousand years after the event... The Gospel of Matthew still reminds it, it, uh, all of the readers that Bathsheba was Uriah's wife and, and, and David, David had Solomon with her who had been the wife of Uriah. And there are all sorts of interesting ways we could speak about the grace of God in that particular circumstance, but that's not our story for today. Our story of grace, as I mentioned a moment ago, is from the book of Genesis. So please turn to chapter 38. Genesis chapter 38. As the storyline in the book of Genesis kind of develops, the plan of redemption begins to unfold in very specific ways in chapter 12, actually, with the calling of God on Abraham. God made a covenant, and you know the way we have defined covenant is simply a sacred set of promises. That's what a covenant is. There are at least eight major covenants that we see in the scripture. A sacred set of promises God made with certain people or certain individuals or certain groups. And God made a covenant, this sacred set of promises, with Abraham. Abraham was going to have, God said in chapter 12, and then again in chapter 15, he, he was going to have so many descendants that they would be like the stars in the sky and the grains of sand on the seashore. And, and one of Abraham's descendants would be the Redeemer. God said, through you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so he's going to have this massive number of descendants, and one of them is going to be the Redeemer. That's in the Abrahamic covenant. And I've often thought that was an interesting covenant to make with a man who at that time had no children. He was about 75 years old. But the grace of God was at work. And of course, we know the rest of the story. Abraham did not. But from chapter 12 up to chapter 36 in Genesis... We see the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob with a few brief detours regarding Ishmael and Esau. But when we come to chapter 37, this beautiful story of Joseph begins, and we're, going, we're not going to read chapter 37, we're going to be in 38, but 37 actually starts the story of Joseph. And Joseph's story really had a very rough start. Chapter 37 ends with Joseph's brothers ripping off his beautiful coat of many colors given to him by his father, indicating Jacob's special love for Joseph. And then the brothers throw him into a dry cistern while they figure out what to do with him. 
Then they see this caravan of traders coming by, and brother Judah, that we just read about in Matthew 1, Judah, who would be become the ancestor of Christ, Judah comes up with this terrific idea to sell little brother as a slave, rather than just kill him. At least we could get some money out of it. So they sell Joseph to the Midianite traders who take him down to Egypt. Most of you are familiar with that story, part of the story of Joseph. Then they killed a kid's goat. They took Joseph's coat. They dipped it in the goat blood. And they viciously took the coat back to dad and played dumb about what they had actually done. And, and, and for the next several decades, 20 years, Joseph was 17 when they did that to him. He was 37 when they come down to Egypt. For the next 20 years, Jacob believes the lie that his beloved son has been killed and eaten by a wild animal, and his brothers keep it all under wraps. Then quite suddenly in the middle of the story, we've got this, this detour in chapter 38, which explains to us why the genealogy in Matthew reads the way it does. But as we think about the grace of God, there's, there's one principle I'm going to be repeating to you several times through, through our thoughts today, and that's this, that the sinful choices set off a chain reaction of consequences. I'll say that again to you. Sinful choices set off a chain reaction of consequences. We see it in Genesis. We see it throughout the Bible. We see it in our own lives. We see it in the lives of people we know. Sinful choices set off a chain reaction of consequences. Now, repentance can break that chain reaction of consequences. But if we just go on and on and on and don't deal with our sinful choices, those sinful choices will set off this chain reaction of consequences in our lives. And I want you to think about it in this story that I just kind of reviewed with you a little bit from chapter 37. Many of you are, are well familiar with this, the story of Joseph. Okay, Jacob's favoritism of Joseph led to sibling rivalry. Rivalry led to bitterness. Bitterness led to hatred. Hatred led to evil words. Evil words led to murderous thoughts. Murderous thoughts led to selling Joseph as a slave. That led to lying to their father and deceiving him and not coming clean with it for the next 20 years. Sin always leads to more sin. It's always a downward spiral. And if we do not repent and come clean about our sinful choices, then we are setting off a chain reaction of consequences which we see in the life of Joseph and his brothers very, very clearly and all throughout the scripture as well. And interestingly, see, if, if Joseph was the problem and all the brothers are mad at him and they're kind of irritated with him, they want to get rid of him. If Joseph was the problem, now that he was gone, you would think the brothers would get it together and be better men. But chapter 38 proves that the heart of the problem is the problem of our heart. Joseph was not their problem. Their problem was their heart. We, they didn't have an external problem. They had an internal problem. A lot of folks say, you know, if people just had a better environment and more education, we'd have fewer problems in our society. You know what? Education makes sinful people smarter. It doesn't make them better. 
Because the problem is in our hearts, not in our circumstances. The heart of our problem is the problem of our heart. Now chapter 38 seems a little bit out of place because it breaks the flow of the story of Joseph. And before we get into reading it, let me just share these thoughts with you. Uh, why would the Holy Spirit direct Moses to include this history in this place in the text? Well, the scripture doesn't directly answer that question, but putting together some clues, I would say this. Without Genesis 38, we would not understand why Matthew 1 includes Tamar's name in the genealogy. It would make no sense. Matthew's genealogy in, 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 in Matthew 1 would make no sense at all without Genesis 38. Another reason uh, why I think it, it, it is here is because it sort of explains in some ways God's greater purpose in sending Joseph to Egypt to pave the way for the entire family to move there. You see, Abraham's, Abraham's descendants, Abraham's gone now, but we've gone to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and now Jacob's sons. We're down to the fourth generation now, and Abraham's descendants are already being pressured to intermingle with the Canaanite culture. Which, if you know anything about the Canaanite culture, it was horrifying. Terribly wicked. And God's clearly stated purpose for His covenant with Abraham was to grow a nation that would preserve His written word and would provide a pathway for the coming of, of the Messiah. <coughs> And in chapter 27 and 28 and 34 of the book of Genesis, we see that, that the, the, the covenant families of Abraham were, were, were very much against any of their sons intermarrying with the Canaanites. So God, I believe another reason for God doing this, he moved them all to Egypt to preserve them as a nation so they did not intermingle with the Canaanites. The Egyptians didn't particularly like outsiders especially those who raised sheep and goats. So they basically stayed separate from the children of Israel. They stuck them in their own little portion of Egypt called, called Goshen. They, they left them there. There wasn't a lot of interaction. And so Jacob's descendants basically stuck together, eventually endured slavery, multiplied astronomically, and they came out of Egypt and back to Canaan several hundred years later as a distinct nation, as the covenant people of God. There's another interesting sideline regarding Judah that we'll talk about in just a moment as well. So it's a, it's a great, great story. We, we have to have Genesis 38. So now as we read here in just a few verses in Genesis 38, we're looking for the grace of God, and it's not going to be immediately evident, but it's there. Follow along with me as I read these first, uh, the first 11 verses of Genesis 38. And it came to pass at that time, that at that time meaning when they had sold Joseph as a slave, that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he married her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. She conceived yet again and bore a son, and called his name Shelah. He was at Chazeb when she bore him. Then Judah took a wife for Ur his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Name means a palm tree or a date palm. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. And Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. 
But Onan knew that the heir would not be his. And it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he emitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. For he said, Lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. Now just in those first few verses, you can easily see why this story is not included in any Sunday school material in the Old Testament. You can also see that the Holy Spirit does not tiptoe around delicate issues, especially as it relates to sin. So let's summarize our thoughts here. Right after Judah comes up with this wicked idea to sell his little brother into slavery, he leaves the family and he takes up with the Canaanites. He marries a Canaanite woman, totally disregarding God's covenant, and in the process of time, he has three sons. His oldest son, Ur, eventually is given a Canaanite wife named Tamar. But Ur is so wicked that God kills him. We don't have any further explanation of his sins, and we probably don't want any further information about it. But whatever it was, it was bad enough, God killed him. And Judah gives Tamar to his next son, Onan, to raise up an heir for his brother. That was a common practice in their time and culture, and actually it became a part of the law of Moses several hundred years later. If a man dies without an heir, a son, then his brother would marry the widow, and their children would technically be considered the children of the deceased brother, so they would get his inheritance, and they would keep the family line going. It's called, in English, levirate marriage. Levere is a Latin word for brother-in-law. So, so Onan takes Tamar as his wife, but he practices this ancient form of birth control because now that big brother Ur is dead, Onan is the oldest son. So he is in line for a double portion of dad's inheritance, and he is not about to ruin that by having a son with Tamar who would then be in line for the double portion. So he says, no way I'm going to ruin my, my financial future by, by, by creating another son for my brother because now I'm the oldest and I'm in line for the double portion of the inheritance. God sees his greed and his wickedness and God kills him. Judah now decides he's going to send Tamar back to her father's house to live as a widow because he's scared that son number three is going to get killed by God because there must be something wrong with Tamar. Every one of my sons I give for him, God kills him. So I'm certainly not going to give him son number three. You think Tamar's starting to feel like a pawn? Women had very few rights in the ancient world. But she's been given away by her father, widowed twice, rejected by her father-in-law, and now blamed for the deaths of her husbands. And she is under the dark cloud in the ancient world of being childless. She's been deprived of her future economic security, her rights to Ur's property, her hope of children to care for her in her old age, and now she finds herself back at her dad's house as a twice-widowed woman under a cloud of suspicion. But being a Canaanite and having the cultural values of Canaan and a lot of time to think about it, she comes up with a plan. 
Now, we won't read all the rest of these verses. Let me just tell you the story. You can read it at some point. Just for the sake of time, let me tell you the story. Judah's wife dies the next couple of verses. Tamar realizes that Judah has no plan at all of, of giving her to his third son. So she dresses up as a religious prostitute. Here in the text in our English Bibles, it just says she dressed up like, like a harlot. The, the Hebrew word indicates she was a religious prostitute. Uh, that, that's that's the that, and certainly j- just to explain prostitution in the ancient world and actually all the way up to Greek and Roman times, prostitution was considered an act of worship to certain gods, and that was true even in the New Testament with the Greeks and Romans. Uh, that's part of the problem with the with the Corinthian church. There was a there was a temple in 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 Corinth to the Greek god Aphrodite their goddess of love and there were a thousand temple prostitutes who worked in that temple in Corinth explain some of the problems that the Corinthian church had so this 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 circumstance that's going on here in Canaan lasted for a long time and even still today and so she she dresses herself up like uh, like a religious prostitute Tamar does, and she sits by the side of the road where she knows Judah is going to be coming by. Judah stops by for business, not recognizing his daughter-in-law, who's dressed like a religious prostitute. And just think about this. Do you see how far Judah, how far down Judah has gone? He is the great-grandson of Abraham. He's the grandson of Isaac. He's the son of Jacob. He is raised in a home that serves God. And suddenly he leaves his brothers, sells Joseph as a slave, goes and lives with the Canaanites, goes through all these things we've talked about, and now as a a widower, he stops by the side of the road to pick up a religious prostitute. See, sinful choices set off a chain reaction of consequences. A downward spiral. Tamar asks for payment. You'll see in the text. Judah offers a goat from his herd. She demands proof that he will actually bring the goat. And he offers her his ring and his staff. Both were important items of identification in the ancient world. The ring would be a, a signet ring. Would have a special design. He, he would imprint it in hot wax on paper to, for, for his signature. Uh, he was his uh, his staff would have special carvings that would mark it out as belonging to him, and so they're like ID cards. So he leaves his ring and his staff, and he says, well, "I'll send someone back with the goat, and then I'll get the ring and the staff." Okay, he takes off. Tamar packs up her tent. She takes off. He gets the goat. He sends it back with his friend, and now they can't find her. There, there, there's nobody there. And so they look around and they ask a few people, uh, hey, where was this religious prostitute by the side of the road? And they said, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never seen a religious prostitute here. And so, I mean, it's kind of interesting. It, I mean, it's sad, but it's interesting. Judah says to his friend, okay, don't keep looking for her. Just let her keep the ring and the staff because we will really get shamed if everybody finds out about this. Fortunately, he still had a little bit of a conscience. Three months pass. Someone tells Judah, your daughter-in-law is pregnant because she pretended to be a religious prostitute. Judah's enraged. Why bring her out and burn her alive? How dare she do that? And as they're grabbing Tamar to march her off to the place of execution, she says, 
Well, before you do that, fellas, go tell my father-in-law that my baby's father is the man who owns this ring and this staff. Ouch. Look at verse 26. We'll pick up the story. So Judah acknowledged them, acknowledged the ring and the, the staff, and said, She has been more righteous than I, because I did not give her to Shelah, my son. And he never knew her again. Now it came to pass, at the time for giving birth, that behold, twins were in her womb. And so it was when she was giving birth that one put out his hand, and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it in his hand, saying, This one came out first. Of course, he had to be the firstborn. He got all the, the special rights. Then it happened that he, as he drew back his hand, that his brother came out unexpectedly. And she said, how did you break through? This breach be upon you. Therefore, his name was called Perez, which meant breach or breakthrough. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Hmm. For those who are familiar with this story... Just remember, Judah is now forced to face his sin. Sinful choices have set off a chain reaction of consequences, but you can't hide from God. Tamar, a Canaanite woman, twice widowed, rejected, abused, who pretended to be a religious prostitute, we believe as an act of revenge against her father-in-law, is in the incredible grace of God, is brought into the direct ancestry of the Lord Jesus Christ, along with a covenant-rejecting son of Jacob named Judah. Grace! It's all over the place. And for those who are familiar with the story of Joseph, remember that when Joseph tests his brothers, you remember that story? They, they come down to Egypt to buy grain. He sends them back. They come back again. And he, he, he kind of d- develops this test to see if they're going to treat Benjamin the way that they treated him. So Joseph says, you got any other brothers? They say, well, yeah, we got one more. He's the youngest. And, you know, he's the, he's the son of our father's favorite wife. And, and uh, you know, he had another brother, but that brother's gone and dead. And, and you know, and, and Joseph says, well, I'm not going to sell you more grain unless you, bring, unless you bring him back. They said, oh, man, that's not going to work. I mean, we're going to bring my little brother back. I mean, dad, dad would die if something happened to that guy. He almost died the first time. No, he said, y- y- if, if you're going to buy more grain, you got to bring him back. And so as they're getting ready to come back the next time, Judah says to Jacob, Dad, I know you don't want to do this, but you know what? If anything happens to Benjamin, you can blame me. I will die for Benjamin if necessary. You can put all the blame on me. Nothing will happen to Benjamin. We're all going to starve to death. We've got to get more grain. And so they send him back. Joseph, you probably remember some of the story. He devises this special plan. He puts a silver cup that belongs to him in Benjamin's sack. And as they're, as they're leaving, you know, uh, with all the sacks of grain, then, then they send the army guys out and they, and they stop them. And they say, somebody stole uh, our master's silver cup. Wow, we didn't do that. Open up all the bags. It's in Benjamin's bag. The brothers rip their clothes. Oh, no. They march them back. Joseph says, you know what he's doing. He's going to see what they're going to do to Benjamin. And if they're going to kill him, Joseph is going to take care of it. They bring him back and Joseph, he's ready. Why, well, I'm going to make this man a slave in my house. He stole my cup. And you know who steps up to the plate? Judah. 
He takes Joseph aside, not knowing it's Joseph. Pleads with him. Oh, sir, if, if Benjamin does not come back to dad, it will kill him. I've pledged my life. Take me instead. Say, wow, what's happened in Judah's heart in the last 20 years, huh? And that, that's the point. That's the breaking point where, where Joseph can't stand it anymore. He realizes that brother Judah, who sold me as a slave, now he's willing to die for my little brother. And Joseph says, send everybody out. And he breaks out weeping. He says, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? I read this Friday night. I, I, just, got, I just get chills. Thinking of that scene, you know, and of course, I am Joseph. Can you imagine the brothers are about, about to pass out? 20 years later, I thought he was dead. 20 years, and yet, and yet here, you know who the hero is here? Judah is the hero. He's the one who steps up and, and, and he lays all this out that God has done some incredible work in Judah's heart over the years. He sells Joseph as a slave. He leaves his family to go live with the Canaanites. He does all these ungodly things in Genesis 38. And 20 years later, he is a sacrificial, dedicated, compassionate man who's willing to lay down his life for his little brother. How did that happen? It is the grace of God in action. Molding a man's heart, transforming him from a bitter, vindictive, hateful brother into a godly man with amazing, self-sacrificing character. I hope you will never again read the genealogy in Matthew 1 the same way. Abraham begot Isaac. By the way, not the firstborn. Isaac begot Jacob. By the way, not the firstborn. Jacob begot Judah, not the firstborn. And Judah begot Perez by Tamar, not the firstborn. Someone once stated it this way, if you were to describe the Christmas story as a portrait, you would have to say that the characters in the story were like rough, frayed burlap on which the golden brush of God's grace painted the most precious moment in history. Or the words of the Apostle Paul when he was talking about God's grace in Romans chapter 5 and verse 20. He said, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Lord, we are overwhelmed by the grace of God. Lord, if we're all honest with ourselves, we, we know that your grace has certainly abounded to us. But we have this, uh, often have this pristine, sanitized sort of look of, at, uh, at the Bible and the people in Bible times. And Lord, we read chapter 38 of Genesis and we just go, Wow. The grace of God is so evident and so active, even in the genealogy of Christ, that you keep doing the, the unthinkable, the unexpected, the unplanned, 
and your grace reaches in and grabs a hold of certain hearts and certain lives and takes wicked, embittered, vindictive people and turns their hearts around to make them submissive and gracious and sacrificial and willing to die for their families. We know, Lord, that is the grace of God. We thank you for your grace in our lives and our salvation. We thank you for your grace evident in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus. Father, may we be gracious this Christmas season. May we show grace to others. May we allow your grace to work miracles in our own hearts. To God be the glory in all of these things. We pray in the powerful name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.